Hi, I'm Sue. Uh, grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups because today I love an alcoholic, and that wasn't always true. That's why I ended up in Al-Anon. My recovery date is May the 11th, 1976, and uh, we want to thank Marvin and uh, James and Britt and the committee, whoever else is responsible for us being here. And, uh, you know, Keith shared in the AA meeting last night, and you could tell by the way he shared he needed help with relationships. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm here to help him. So, and, uh, a lot of you need help in relationships like we do, huh? So, who's here that's not in a relationship that wants one? There, a guy back there. He must be a newcomer. So you girls look at back there. <laughs> and he's here getting ready. So it's a good deal starting right off the bat for him. Uh, yeah, we'll go through this uh, today um, talking about our relationship. By the time we get through, you're going to know everything about us. We have no secrets. Uh, our serenity is attached to our secrets. We have none. And so serenity is very important to us. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic. I couldn't uh, drink and keep up with Keith. I tried. If we kicked everybody out of Alanon that had drank and used with an alcoholic, we wouldn't have membership. So, uh, you know, I qualify for the program of Alanon, but it was very important to me when I first got here to understand why it said in the first step, I'm powerless over alcohol my life's unmanageable because I did not know uh, why alcohol. I'm powerless over the alcoholic. I tried to change him. I tried to do things for him. I tried to tell him what to do right and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he wouldn't pay any attention to me. And, uh, and it confused me. I didn't know. And I believe that most of our actions before we get here is based on ignorance. And... Uh, so I was told by the long-timers in this program to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and learn all I could about the disease of alcoholism. And what I got to find out in that big book is that there's a phenomena of craving in the alcoholic. It's an allergy of the body and uh, a compulsion of the mind. And I did not have that allergy. I could drink, and when I'd have enough, I could quit. And I needed to know that the person that I loved could not do that. Once he had a drink, because I'd hear, you know, the first drink gets him drunk. No, it was like the 12th or 15th drink got him drunk. But I didn't know that once he started drinking, he couldn't quit. And as a non-alcoholic, that was very important for me to know. Because I wasn't raised in alcoholism, I knew nothing about it. Um, I came from like a so-called normal home. And when I got to meetings, they would say, once you're attracted to the alcoholic personality, you'll always be attracted to the alcoholic personality. And I very smugly thought, so what's a lady like me doing in a place like this? And Because uh, I'd never had been attracted to an alcoholic personality. And I did a lot of inventory work after I got here of why did I belong in this place? What qualified me? Uh, why did God take me to an alcoholic? Why did that show up in my life if I had no interest in that at all, ever, and knew nothing about it? And uh, 
What I got to find out is that when I met the alcoholic, there was a lot of excitement and a lot of unpredictability, and I loved that. And I immediately became addicted to that, the excitement of the alcoholic personality. So what I understand today is that when I get obsessed with the alcoholic, that is my drink of choice. I get drunk in the head when I get obsessed with another person because obsessiveness is my biggest character defect. So, um, and I believe that once uh, alcoholics get sober, we're all the same. You know, it's, um, we all have the same character defects. I just don't have the phenomena craving. And I have an obsession, an obsessive mind in uh, all of the character defects that go with it, that I try to fix me with outside things instead of looking for a God in my life. So when I got here, uh, I was a very mean and angry lady, and I didn't know why. And uh, I wasn't raised like that. I came from a very loving family. My family, I had an older sister and a younger brother. My dad worked in the oil fields. We lived in a trailer house. We uh, uh, we followed oil rigs all around Oklahoma and Texas Panhandle and western Kansas for years. I went five, six, seven schools in one year. And uh, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. And it, uh, my mother used to tell me, you know, nobody's better than you, but you're not better than anybody else, you know, to help me hold my head up. You know, last night's meeting was on ego. I had to come to Al-Anon to find an ego because I'd been beat down. I thought I knew everything. I had a lot of smug and arrogance and self-righteousness. But my self-worth was way low because of the disease of alcoholism, because of the way I'd been raised prior to being called oil field trash all my life. And so I had characteristics that uh, once I met the disease of alcoholism, they just blossomed like crazy. You know, it's, um, you know I'm the kind of person that, uh, you know, like this lady, she go, gets off work one day from work, and she goes to a bar and thinks, well, before I go home and fix dinner, I want to relax and stuff, so I'll just go in and have one drink, and then I'll go fix dinner and and uh, rest for the evening after a hard day's work. And she goes in this bar, and she sits down at the end of the bar, and this cowboy comes in, and he flops down a $100 bill on the bar. And he tells the bartender, he said, I want a bottle of Jack Daniels and don't let it go dry. And the bartender said, well, it looks like you're going to really hang on on a drunk. And he said, I am. I just got out of prison. And the bartender said, oh, my gosh, what are you in there for? He said, "Um, killing my wife. Bartender said, okay. So he walks off, go get a bottle of Jack Daniels. And this little gal scoots down on the bar stool next to the cowboy. She goes, so I hear you're single. And uh, (laughs) that's the kind of person I am. (laughs) It's like, no problem here. And uh, you know, went through a lot of stuff growing up, looking for answers in all the wrong places. Um, when I was a young teenager, my dad passed away with cancer, and that left my my sister got married, and it left my mother, my younger brother, and I at home. And uh, my mother started dating. I resented her for that because she's been disloyal to my father because I'd always been daddy's little girl, and. Uh, 
I started rebelling to her and looking for love in all the wrong places. And I ended up in San Antonio, Texas, looking for, uh, you know, I was in an unwed mother's home. I'd look for love in all the wrong places, ended up pregnant. At that age, and back then, you didn't keep a child. And uh, I was sent off to this home. And I stayed there for a period of time, gave a child up for adoption, and I went back. And uh, and I didn't like the people I was running with. My mom said to me one night, she was going to a honky-tonk. She said, you want to go with me and my friends? And I said, sure. And so I walked in. Oh, my gosh, it was smoky and rowdy. And uh, people were fighting and they were dancing. The music was loud. And it's like, yeah, I'm home. I loved everything about the atmosphere, everything. And I watched this cowboy move the room, and everywhere he went, something was happening, and it was a fight, and I thought it took a lot of courage for him to do that. And uh, he'd started this fight. He came running past me, and he said, Honey, let me know when the fight's over. And he ran in the woman's restroom to hide. And uh, like a good potential Alnon, I stood there on duty. And so when the fight was over, I said, Cowboy, you can come out now. And he came out, and he asked me for the last dance. And uh, I'll never forget it. The last dance was usually a slow dance where you rub up against each other and get ready to go home. But, uh, this was a fast dance, and it kept getting faster and faster and faster, and we didn't miss a lick. And what I understand about that today is that he got me downtown in the fast lane right now. And uh, he came... Uh, he called me, asked me out. My mom said, no, you're not going out with him. He's older than you. He's been married before, and he's in trouble all the time. And I said, I don't care. And so Keith came to pick me up for a date. We go outside. There's no car. I said, wait a minute. My date's picked me up in cars. And he said, well, you don't understand. I've lost my driver's license, and uh, I wrecked my car. And I said, no problem. And uh, I got got him in my car, and I knew what to do. Took him to the drive-in movie, and you sit at the movie, and you kiss and smooch and steam up the windows, and we sit there, and we watch the movie. And I remember thinking, this must be what it's like to be with a more mature man. And then I noticed that he had a six-pack beer between his legs, that he was more interested in me, and that set up that obsession in me. I wanted to be number one in that man's life, and I would go to any lengths in the next 15, 16 years. It almost killed me doing that. He wouldn't mind, and I'd do all kinds of things to him uh, to make him pay attention to me. And he'd get angry at me, and I'd hit him, and he'd hit me back, and we'd have those fights. And we were just dating. And uh, I'd go home and I'd have a black eye and my mom would say, what do you do to that man to make him treat you like that? And I'd say, what do I do to him? Look what he just did to me. You know, not taking responsibility for my own actions. And that's what I found during uh, the process of my recovery in this program is that uh, one of the things that they read, that they just read before the meeting is working with others. And in working with others, what Keith and I are trying to try to do today is share with you what we do to better our relationship. The tools that we use in this program that gets us compatible to have some compassion for each other in our relationship because we come from a place where we had none. 
It was all selfish, self-centered, do-it-my-way type stuff. And that is the biggest problem with relationships with the disease of alcoholism is thinking of somebody else. And what I found out in the process of this recovery and working with others is that uh, in doing inventories, if I don't look like I was taught to do an inventory by the four columns in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if I don't look at that fourth column, what part I played, like first column's resentment, the second column is the cause, the third column is how it made me feel, and then the fourth column is what part did I play, where was I selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, all that kind of stuff. If I do not look at that fourth column, I will not recover. And I will not change. And there are consequences for every action I take. And that seems to me in being able to receive fifth steps from ladies that I've sponsored, um, that that's the problem. We don't want to look at our part. We do not want to look at the consequences. I don't know how many fifth steps I've done and say, what were you doing before this happened, where were you? And when people start answering those questions, they find out that the problem was the consequences of their actions. That's why bad things happen to us, is because we try to force our will on others instead of saying, what do you think? Well, Instead of keep paying attention to me and making out in the car, jerking the car keys out of the car and throwing them out in the vacant lot and making him go look for it does not make him passionate when we're dating. <laughs> him coming over to watch TV with me and passing out on the sofa when he's passed out, which I thought he was falling asleep on me, and he had long hair and a long beard, and I shaved half his head and half his face off when he woke up did not make him passionate. <laughs> and he went around like that for two weeks. And I thought he was cute as hell, because he'd say, everybody in this town thinks I'm two-faced anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and I did things like that because I wanted his attention. And the things that I did to get his attention were things that pushed him away from me. And made him irritable, restless, and discontent toward me, rejecting me. And then I'd have to do something else to get his attention, you know. I did things for him. Why isn't he doing things for me? Like go to jail. I'll go to jail, you know. We went up to uh, Kansas one time to a honky-tonk. And we were, um, we had a fight up there. And uh, we're driving home and he... You know, who's going to drive home? He wins. He gets in the car behind the wheel, and we're going 100 miles an hour across the Oklahoma Panhandle back to Texas, where we came from. And when we go through radar at the state line, he said, my God, if they ever catch me, I'll never see the sun again. And I said, no problem. And I switched places with him going 100 miles an hour in that car. And there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not drunk. And when we get the other end of the state line, they come up the car. They had a roadblock there, and, and uh, when we got stopped, they said, we, you weren't under the wheel when we checked this car out a while ago. We don't know how you got under this wheel, but we've checked it out, and it's been reported stolen, and so we're taking you in. 
and Keith Smart off the cop and and they put him in the sheriff's car and told me to follow him 40 miles to the county seat so they could arrest me. So I did. And I'm doing that kind of stuff for him. He's not doing nothing for me, I think. Now, and so it's like, when's my turn? When's he going to pay attention to me? But it was because I would start all of these scenarios. You know, like being a honky-tonk, he's not paying attention to me. Flirt with another guy so he'll pay attention to me. You know, I rails suspicion and jealousy and all those kind of things. That's not loyalty. That's not love. And so as the disease of alcoholism progressed in our life, the relationship problems got worse. We couldn't communicate. And, uh, you know, we... Uh, Ended up getting married, and uh, he got a draft notice, and uh, we got married, and he didn't pass his physical, so Uncle Sam let me keep him, and uh, we moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma, and he enrolled in school, and and he'd gone to many schools, never gotten a degree, but I knew that I had what it took to make him stay put. If he would just stay in one school, he could get a degree and finish school. And I would tell myself how important I was that I could do all these things. And uh, because alcoholism was starting to tell me, you're not worth anything, you're a piece of you-know-what, and, and the alcoholism in me started believing that kind of stuff. That's where relationships go when there's no recovery. That's where relationships go when there's alcoholism involved. And after we moved to Stillwater, not very long after that, we had our daughter, Simone. And I can remember when they handed her to me saying, thank God she's a girl. Because Keith was a drunk, his dad was a drunk, and his granddad was a town drunk. And it's like, I didn't know alcoholism doesn't care what sex, color, race, or creed you are. It'll take you to the gates of insanity and hell, and you don't even have to drink booze to get there. And I understand today that this is a deadly disease. Not just for the alcoholic, but for me too, for the non-drinker. We had a lady in our group, um, in my home group in California, uh, three years ago. And she came to Al-Anon. He didn't get sober, and she didn't need Al-Anon anymore. And uh, him and her had a fight, and she remembered that... Uh, She'd heard in meetings that when you have a fight and you, you can't stop it, just walk away, get out of there. And she went and got in her car and uh, to leave, and he jumped on one of the kids' bicycle, and he he rode the bicycle in front of her car when she stopped at the stoplight, the corner by their place. And uh, she saw him in front of her, and she floorboarded that car and ran over him and looked in the rearview mirror, and he was still flopping back there. And she put it in reverse and drove over him again. She drove over him three times. She said, I just wanted it to stop. And she's doing time for murder. She wasn't drunk. She's not an alcoholic. It's a deadly disease, and I understand that rage. I understand that rage. You know, it's... Um, you know, I've had a, an Al-Anon panel in a woman's prison for 27 years. And uh, there's women in there that are just like me. They're not alcoholics or addicts. You know, I uh, two inmates shared in there one night, and uh, one was an alcoholic and one was a non-alcoholic, and they were both in there doing murder life terms. One had gotten drunk and got even, and the other one got even and hadn't drank at all. 
And they were both in there for the same reason. And uh, I understand the rage, the blind rage that you can get into and you can't stop it. You know, my daughter, when Keith and I would fight and he'd be done and walk away from me because I'd get in his face and shake that finger and if you do that again and he'd say, get out of my face. And uh, I'd take one step closer and uh, he'd hit me in the knockdown drag out fight would be on. And when he was done and wanted to walk away, I'd turn around and Simone would be standing there and I'd take the rest of that rage out on her. It's a family disease. And uh, I took a lot of my anger out on that girl. And so when we got into recovery, the steps are so important because our family has healed through the steps of this program. And it's... Uh, it's the steps to put relationships back together. When I got to the program of Al-Anon, after hitting the bottom, and I believe that all non-alcoholics have to hit a bottom just like every alcoholic does. And uh, when I hit a bottom and I finally surrendered, and the guy that 12-stepped Keith came to our house and he said, you need help. And I said, no, I don't. If he just quits drinking, I'll be fine. He said, no, you won't. And uh, he said, you are the most foul-mouthed, angry woman I've ever met in my life. And he told Simone, if you love your daddy, you'll go to a program called Alateen. And I started going to the program of Al-Anon. She started going to Alateen. And uh, when I got in there, I understood. I felt good. I felt safe. I felt relief. I didn't feel shameful anymore because everybody in there was talking about the same thing that I felt. And they answered all my questions before I asked. So I understand today that in order to build a relationship, I had to come to the program of Al-Anon first. In, uh, in the very beginning, uh, my higher power was my home group. I got a sponsor. And then my higher power was my sponsor. And then as my sponsor took me through the steps, it transferred that dependency from the home group to the sponsor to a God of my own understanding. And that's what those steps do for us. And they teach us about relationships. I had to develop a relationship with a room, my home group, and develop a relationship of trust with a sponsor before I could ever have trust in my relationship with my daughter or my husband. And uh, and that's why we come here. We come to the program to learn what not to do, to get rid of all those old ideas, throw them out the window, unlearn. I had to unlearn everything that I thought was good. And then I had to get all these new ideas out of uh, the 12 and 12 and uh, out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and out of the Al-Anon literature. You know, I... Uh, was taught to read all my books in the morning when I first get up and uh, and say the third and the seventh step prayer, any other prayers I want to, and look in the mirror and say, good morning, Sue, I love you. Because the self-esteem was not there. And I did that this morning. I looked in this morning and said, God, you look good. Yeah. And uh, it felt good. It felt good. Yeah. And as going through those steps... Um, what I found out is in the fifth step, the fifth step has 12 rules in there for building a relationship. And, and I want to go over that with you as we go through the steps. So Keith and I are going to go through the steps and the traditions in, um, um, 
hit on the literature and any other thing that we can share with you that has helped us and still helps us, because we're not done. Uh, people that graduate from this program end up drunk and insane. And uh, I don't ever want to graduate. I want to stay here with the sick ones that are trying to get better. Yeah. And, uh, and it feels better, and I identify here. Practice these principles in all of my affairs. And, uh, and this program puts families back together. Keith and I and Simone are one of the few families that we know of. Sissy's here. It's good to see Sissy. Her family recovered with this program. Our family has recovered as a family in this program together. And uh, very few do that. Very few make it. And people say, well, I want my husband this, I want my husband that. The key is, is that you, I had to be in a relationship with someone who wanted to be in the relationship. Both parties have to want this thing. And I was so sick and so insane and so hungry for answers when I finally surrendered and got to this program, that I didn't care what Keith did. And isn't that the way this program works? Once we surrender and we give up and we don't need it anymore, that's when we get it. And we start getting back what we give away. I remember telling my sponsor in the very beginning, he never gives me compliments she goes, do you ever compliment him? Well, no, he's a guy. He has feelings like you. Give him compliments. And then I remember calling her one day. said, I know I've given him at least 100 compliments, and I haven't gotten one yet. She said, just keep giving it away, and one day you'll get it back. And I do. I do. And... Uh, you know, many times we'll go, you know, I was taught to uh, go to at least three Al-Anon meetings a week, and I still do that, usually more, because I like who I am after I, when I'm in a meeting and after I've been to a meeting. And I was taught to go at least one open AA speaker meeting a week so I could hear other alcoholics share so I'd know I didn't live with the only crazy sucker in town. And uh, that's still our pattern today. And... Uh, Last Thursday night, we went to a, an open AA speaker meeting together. It was a large meeting in Las Vegas. And uh, when we got home, Keith said, you were the best-looking lady in the room. Now, how neat. How neat. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but I believe it. I believe it because I feel good about me today. And it's like, I don't have to look at you today to size you up and judge you to see if I feel okay. Happiness is an inside job, I found out in this program. And as long as I'm happy with me, you're fine. You're fine. Keith's fine. Simone's fine. And so I had to build all of these answers with me in this program you know, one of the things that everybody goes, oh, we got to be together. We've got to do this together. We've got to do that together. And he's stuck right here on my hip. And if I'm going to be here, he better be here, blah, blah, blah. And uh, what I've come to understand, Keith and I are not connected at the hip. And he goes to his meetings and I go to my meetings. And when we get home, we have something to share. 
I remember when I was new in the program, I always liked musicals. And I never went to them because Keith didn't like them. And so after I got in the program, my sponsor said, he doesn't have to like them. You can go anyway. Yeah. And so I decided to go to a musical in L.A. with um, some Al-Anon friends. And so I was getting all dressed up one day and getting ready to go to L.A. We was going to go over and we was going to have dinner and we was going to go to this musical at the Pantages Theater. And, oh, my God, that was big stuff to me. And Keith walks in, and he's all dressed up as a biker, and he's going for a bike ride. And I look in the mirror, he's standing there beside me, and I've got on this nice dress and pumps, and, and he's dressed like a biker and a bandana. And I'm thinking, what's a lady like me doing with a jerk like this? <laughs> and it dawned on me, because that's the man I love. That's the man I love. That's why I'm with him. It's not his outsides either. We love the person inside. And the thing that I love about this program that I've been taught with from long-timers is that, uh, you know, a lot of alcoholics make fun of Aldons, and uh, Keith never has, and I really respect him for that. And he's always uh, supported me and the ladies that I sponsor and uh, and our daughter and support the ladies that she sponsors at uh you know, you run across areas where AA does not respect Al-Anon program. And I want to thank you for allowing me to participate in your program this week, uh, this weekend. Uh, obviously not that way here because we're all human. And you know, we've all been affected by the disease of alcoholism. But it's like I was taught by the long-timers that Al-Anons are the only ones that never gave up on the alcoholic. Everybody else rejects them. Get rid of them. Throw the bum out, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we hang in there because we see the insides. And it's like when I used to want to throw him away and I'd leave him, we'd take turns leaving each other. It was like there was a person in there that I cared about, that I loved, you know. And I'd leave and Simone and I'd leave and we'd run away and we'd be gone for about three days and I'd call him at work and I'd say, can I call you ever once in a while? You're my very best friend. And he'd say, damn it, Sue, come home. And we'd go home, we'd make up, and everything would be fine until the next drunk. And, uh, and I thought, what is it? What is it about me? What am I attracted to? And I don't think there's anything more loving than an alcoholic. And when Keith was new, I remember watching him hug a newcomer. And I went, oh, my God. He cares about somebody else. And I fell in love with him. Because any alcoholic does not want to give away anything. And he started giving of himself to newcomers. And it made me fall in love with him. And uh, what I understand today is that, you know, it's like the story of the man that was going to uh, put in a new lawn. And he had an optimistic son and a pessimistic son. And uh, the pessimistic son, he had had a load of fertilizer delivered. And the pessimistic son said, Dad, what are you doing? That stinks like crazy. You know, 
let's wait. I don't understand what you're doing. And the dad said, it's fertilizer, son. He said, I'm going to spread that all over the yard, and there's going to be a nice yard, and we'll have a, a beautiful lawn. And the kid said, I don't care. It stinks. I can't handle this, you know. And he looks out the window, and his optimistic son's out there just digging like crazy. And he goes out there, and he goes, son, what are you doing? And the kid says, Daddy, with this much horse shit, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And it's like, that's what I looked for. That's what I stayed for. It was the pony that was on the inside. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the monster came out a lot, and toward the end, it came out more often. But what I got to recognize in my fourth step is that it came out in me. It came out in me. I could not, no longer, after I did a, a four-column inventory, blame the alcoholic for all the bad things. I wasn't a victim anymore. And my sponsor said, there are no victims. There's volunteers. And uh, and I tried the Al-Anon blueprint for progress, and it didn't work. And I tried an autobiography. It didn't work. And she took me the big book, the four-column inventory. And, uh, and I did that, and I got to take everybody else's inventory at the very beginning, what, who it was, what they did, and how they made me feel. And, God, it was great. And my sponsor said, be as petty as you can with all of that stuff. And I was. And I got the fourth column, and I said, I don't understand. I can't do this. It doesn't feel right. I don't know what part I played. And she said, you get on your knees and you ask God to put the words in that pencil that you need to see. And so I did. And I remember getting up off that floor and I started writing. And it was like a video in front of me. I could see myself in Keith's face saying blah, 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 blah. I could hear him saying, get out of my face, sir, or I'm going to hit you. And I would take one step closer, and the knockdown drag out fight was on. And it's like, oh, my God, it was me. It was me. He told me he didn't want to do that, and I wouldn't quit. And my obsession and the blindness of I can fix this no matter what, I believe, was just as strong as his drive for alcohol. And what I've learned in this program is that uh, obsession and love can't live in the same vessel. You know, when I'm obsessed with something, uh, love's out the window. And so I have to give up and surrender and uh, accept you know, resentments, uh, you know, expectations are premeditated resentments. I can have no expectations. It got me in trouble all the time. We've gone through surrenders in this program. In uh, yeah, 10 years, we had a huge surrender in this program. The feds came after Keith for being involved in organized crime for over 20 years, and I went nuts. I went nuts. He'd been sober for 10 years. And he's involved with organized crime. That means he's done this for 10 years in recovery. That's not recovery in my head. And I'm judging. And I went crazy. And I went to my sponsor's house. <laughs> and at that time, the sponsor I had lived in Covina off of the 10 freeway in California. And... Uh, and I'm going down the freeway, and I'm screaming, and I'm yelling at God, what do you think you're doing? We've been in recovery for 10 years. This is not supposed to be happening to us. And I look up, and I'm in, I'm in Pasadena, and I'm like, how did I get here? 10 years in recovery. 
And so I get off the freeway and I turn around and I go back the other direction and I end up in Pomona. Covina's in the middle of those two places. And I'm thinking, where did Covina go? I am so crazy. And I finally pulled over and uh, tried to calm myself down, tried to say the serenity prayer, tried to say the third step prayer. And then I finally got to my sponsor's house. And uh, when I rang the doorbell, her sober alcoholic husband answered the door. And he said, oh, my God, Sue, what's wrong? Let me give you a hug. And I said, get away from me. You're an alcoholic. And they took me in their house, and they set me on the couch, and my sponsor came. She'd sit on the other end of the couch, and she'd reach over and pat me, and she'd say, it's okay. It's going to be okay. She was scared to death of me because I was right back in that blind rage because I hadn't gotten my way. I wasn't going according to my expectations. And I was crazier in hell. And when I get crazy, the anger comes back. And people get afraid of me. I am not a nice person when recovery is not the center in my focus. And uh, she told me that night, if you have expectations, everything in your life will have to fail you in order for you to get closer to your God. She said, uh, Keith failed you. That's what got you to Al-Anon. That's what got him to Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, there was a time that you thought that uh, Al-Anon had failed you. And you found out that you were going through menopause. It wasn't Al-Anon at all. You had expectations. And she said, now you think that Alcoholics Anonymous has failed you, and it has not. Keith's sober. He has not drank. And she said, you've had expectations. Everything in your life will fail you in order for you to get closer to your God. And if you can get through this, we'll do an inventory. You'll write about it. We'll look at the fourth column. And you're going to take actions and you're going to get busy again in service. And uh, I did all that. And uh, it started getting better. And I was asked to uh, speak at a convention up in Canada. And on Sunday mornings, they had a big breakfast out in the pines. In, uh, and they let people from, guys from this prison come. And there was this huge Indian guy that he came from prison. And he seemed like he was as tall as those trees. And he talked about freedom. And he was a lifer in that prison. But every year they let those inmates out to go to that breakfast for that AA convention. And they always called on him, and he always shared on freedom, and I heard it. Freedom is an inside job. And I accepted the fact that as long as my husband is sober, he has freedom. And as long as I allow him to do what he's got to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, he has freedom, and so do I. And I went back home and I told Keith, I said, you know, I think I understand what's going on. And the feds are after you and you got to go to these hearings. And if you have to do time, it's okay. God has a purpose for you in that prison. I have accepted that. And he goes, screw you. You aren't looking at the time. <laughs> 
But the point was is that I got in acceptance. And then whatever Keith and his sponsor and AA did with him was fine with me. And, uh, and his sponsor worked with him to get him through that. But it was so funny because every time we would get in the car to go somewhere, Keith was turning on this tape of a guy called Norm A., and he was listening to Norm, because Norm used to talk about being involved with the guys downtown, downtown. And we understood what he meant. And Norm had been gone. He'd passed away two years before that. He was actually 12-stepping my husband from the grave. And I thought, oh, my gosh, if Norm could still help Keith, Betty, his wife's bound to be able to help me. And so I called Betty, and I said, Betty, I need help. I'm in trouble. And I told her what was going on, and she said, Sid, I want to tell you something. She said, Alcoholics Anonymous is going to help Keith. You can't help him get through that, stay sober. And that's what you're worried about. You're worried about his sobriety. And that's none of your business. It's up to Alcoholics Anonymous. What your business is is that that's a man that you love, that you're married to. He's your husband. And you've made a commitment to him to be his wife. Now, he's going through this, and he's going to go down in every area. You better keep him alive in the bedroom, or you're going to lose him. Because he'll go down, and he'll reach out for anything to make himself feel better. And she said, I want you to make a commitment to me to keep that man alive in the bedroom. And I did. And uh, and it worked. And there was nights that Keith would say, no, I don't think so. And I didn't take it personal because I knew that he was in a place that he wasn't feeling good about himself and it wasn't important. And there was times that it was great and we had a good time. And I kept that man encouraged in that area. And I'd gone to an AA lady that had uh, 22 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, been an ex-hooker, and I said, Ann, I want to learn everything you can teach me about sex. And she did. <laughs> and I told Keith that I'd done that, spent two hours with her, and he said, babe, I'm so proud of you for reaching out. <laughs> and we got through that, and he was released from that. And uh, I used to say, yeah, you used to think you was a free man. You were just loose. Now you're a free man. And I let him go, go with that whole deal, and it made us stronger as a couple because we with you on one hand and God on the other we can get through anything we can get through anything I've gone through the ego inflation with jobs God I had my dream job and they'd sent me to school and I got my degree I was in HR and I was telling everybody what they could do and what they couldn't do they'd never had an HR department before and I developed it and I was uh, negotiating union contracts, and Keith belonged to a union in his job, and I'd go home and tell him what he could do and what he couldn't do, and he'd go, wait a minute, you are not on the clock anymore. And uh, they shut that company down. My ego had to be smashed. 400 people lost their jobs because my ego had to be smashed. And I used to think, God, that's kind of drastic. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and during that period of time that I was off work, uh, God, I was on my knees so much I had rug burns. And uh, and I finally, one night, I was in a step study meeting and we was on the third step. 
And it talks about the dependency in that third step has to be on God. In the AA 12 and 12, it talks about dependency 19 times. And that I can have no dependencies on anything but a God of my own understanding. And when I get that dependency on God, my independence is my greatest asset. And those are the kind of things that I've learned in uh, recovery of this thing and how important it is that uh, my focus stays where it's supposed to be or the disease comes back all the time. And uh, and after being off work for three months, another division of that same company, once I'd surrendered, okay, God, whatever you want, because my ego was so great, I'd go on interviews. I'd walk in and there'd be four to ten people in there filling out applications for the same job, and I'd think, I don't need this. And I'd turn around and walk out, and I'd get in the car, and I'd start home, and I'd start crying. What did I just do to myself? Because the ego was so huge. I'm not an alcoholic, but I can get ego inflation going. Just, just make me feel important once. I'll eat it up, you know? And it has to be smashed. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the ego has to be smashed. And it has to be done over and over and over again in order for us to practice humility in our life on a daily basis. And I went through that. And after three months, another division of the same company called me and, and they hired me back and reinstated my seniority and 401k and everything. But I had to go through that surrender. And the neat part about that whole thing was is that once I got back into human resources, I had compassion for people that were unemployed. Isn't that great? I had to experience that myself in order to have compassion for people that were going through what I'd gone through. And, uh, and it ended up being a great career for me. And uh, I worked for that company for 15 years and then was asked to leave that company. And I got a retirement package, an early retirement package from that company. And uh, I'll forever be grateful. They hired a new manager and... Uh, he wanted someone that with a master's degree in there, and I wasn't necessary anymore. And they had to go through a process. For, it took them two and a half years to get rid of me. And I hated it every day. I hated it. And uh, I'd ask my sponsor, what does it mean in the big book? We cease fighting all people and all things. What does that mean? I can't rat her out. I can't call corporate and rat her out. And I kept my mouth shut, and my sponsor had me write a two-page letter of all of my accomplishments with that company and send it to corporate because I'd never had a review. Um, I'd helped that company make millions of dollars. We'd won lawsuits, a sexual harassment lawsuit because of all the documentation that I'd done on that whole situation. Stress cases, a driver's uh, walkout. I worked for a distribution company. I'd saved that company millions of dollars. And gotten bonuses like crazy, but never got a review. And here I am with a new supervisor and new boss, and I'm being written up on a regular basis. Don't give that information to the managers. Give it to me, and I'll pass it on to them. And they started, the managers started complaining because they weren't getting their information, and I got blamed for it. And so it was a lot of... Uh, stuff like that that I had to walk through. And every morning before I go to work, I'd call my sponsor just to get her encouragement. 
saying you can do this today, one day at a time. And I had to walk through that every day, and it took two and a half years. And the day that they walked me out, the HR director from corporate came. And uh, she said, the president, uh, we wish you would have called us and talked to us. The president has always liked you, and you're a very valuable employee, but you never said anything to us about what was going on. And they followed procedures, and it's a done deal now. But if you will resign, we have a package for you. And I said, thank you. Thank you. They'd never given a package like that to anybody at my level before. And uh, the HR director said to me, she said, let's go out in the warehouse and get some boxes, and I'll help you pack your stuff. I said, okay, and we got out there. And she said, Sue, I'm so sorry. She said, I wish you had called me. And I gave her a hug, and I said, you know what, Robin, it's okay. This is the way it's meant to be. It's not a problem. I feel good about this. And she started crying, and she said, oh, my God. You're the one that's being walked out. I'm crying, and you're comforting me. I hope someday I have the dignity that you have as a woman. That is a result of the program. That's a result of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alanon doesn't have 12 steps. We got to adapt the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I applied those steps every day to that whole situation. So not only through this 33 years that we've been in this program has Keith had surrenders in his life, but I have too. Our daughter has had surrenders in the 33 years that she's been in this program. And uh, she has a great life today. She went to Italy to become a model and became a model and fell in love with an Italian and uh, married him, and she's been over there for uh, 22 years. And they have, uh, they get to raise our granddaughters. And what a trip that is. And we talked to Simone on Thursday, and uh, she had some ladies that she sponsors coming over to their house, and they were cooking a dinner, and they were going to have a meeting in her house. She's still active, 33 years in the program. And we got to talk to our granddaughters. And, uh, you know, our oldest one is 10, and uh, she speaks uh, Italian and a little bit of English. And then the two-and-a-half-year-old, uh, she speaks three languages. Her name's Jasmine, and, and she speaks Jasmine and Italian and a little bit of English. And we understand all three languages, Yeah. And what a trip that is to have a family like that. And uh, and it's all a result of these steps. These steps and the traditions can get us through anything. Like in a relationship, the first tradition says our common welfare should come first. That means I have to work on me and I have to get better with me and my God before I can have unity with anybody or anything else. Once I have done that for me, then the unity in my home and the unity in my home group and the unity with you and me is okay. The unity at work's okay. Unity is the key. And I am the only person with the key. You can give me all of the tools you want to, but until I am willing to open that door on the inside and let you in, there is no recovery. 
So um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with relationships. There's a lot of answers for relationships. There's a lot of surrenders we have to go through. You know what I thought when I first got to this program? I thought that if we surrendered to this program and we got all these tools and all these principles to live by, that our life was just going to be smooth. Well, it's not. But what this program's done for us is it has given us the tools to live with life on life's terms. We go through everything that everybody else in this world goes through, except we can do it with more dignity. You know, it's like last year when they had the fires in California. Those fires, we were evacuated. We were listening to houses two blocks from our house burn down. And it was ugly. It was horrible. And we are the only people in our neighborhood that we know of that are the weird ones. We're the losers. We belong to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And one of our neighbors was being told Keith one day he was outside and he had a beer. And he said, um, and it's obvious, we're in the program. We got bumper stickers. We have things on our door. We have a sign by our front door that says we don't dial 911. And it's got a smoking gun and the AA symbol on it. <laughs> and uh, so it's obvious yeah, we have a place in a piece of um, concrete that has the AA and the Aladon symbol on it. So, you know, if you know anything about the program, you know we're in it. And this guy told, neighbor told Keith one time, he had a beer in his hand. He said, you know, that AA thing might work for you, but it didn't work for me. This still works for me. And Keith's going, good for you, yeah. And they were down there one day and they were fighting. And he's telling his wife, she's screaming at him, and he's going, knock it off. Everybody can hear you, yeah. And then you hear this, (laughs) and I started laughing. I knew he'd put his hand over her mouth. (laughs) So anyway, we are the weird ones in the neighborhood. Everybody else is normal, okay? And the minute we heard we was being evacuated, there were five, six Al-Anons and five, ten AAs at our house. And they had the hoses. They were watering down our house. They were watering down the neighbors' houses. All the other neighbors just had their family there, throwing stuff in the car, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was like we were the only ones that had help and were the weird ones. And it was like, my God, nobody else had that kind of help or love around them, supporting them, getting through that. And it was so cool that when we got back home, we was unpacking and our house didn't get hit. And uh, the gratitude, oh, my God, the gratitude. Uh, And, uh, you know, and the ladies came over and they're helping me put the house back in order and hang back up clothes. And they had said, Sue, what clothes you want? I said, I don't care, just throw stuff in there because I was taking pictures off the walls and, and stuff like that. And and so we're putting my clothes. They'd thrown clothes in the suitcase and stuff. And so I'm going, Jesus Christ, you guys, look at the clothes that you put in that suitcase, you know. How did you decide what to take? And they go, oh, we just put the stuff in there that we like to see you in, you know. And it's like if I'd had to gone to a high school or something to stay there for the weekend or the day, I would have been the best dressed person there because my friends helped me, you know. 
And it's like, who has friends like we do? Who has the tools to develop relationships and love like we do? It's available for us. All we got to do is apply these principles to our life. We don't even have to be good. You love us no matter what. And that makes us want to be better people. And so we try harder. We try harder. And it's like, I remember one time, uh, and I'll close with this story, is that um, I was wondering, why can I not drink? Because after Keith got sober and we went through a Christmas and he wanted to kill me because I still drank. It was the first Christmas after his sobriety. And I decided I'm not going to drink anymore. And then he really wanted to kill me because I just, you're not going to drink. How can you not do that, you know? So anyway, I had gone to a HR conference. And uh, I was sitting there. And in the, in the conference, everybody was all dressed up in suits and everything. They were impressing everybody. And they all knew all the answers and, you know, and it was like, and I sat in that room and I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, these people are so arrogant. And, uh, but they know a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I thought I'll listen and I'll just, uh, I'll absorb a bunch of stuff. And every once in a while they'd ask me a question or something and I'd answer it. But I was impressed with all these people. So then they have a dinner for us that night and, uh, we all go to dinner. And all these people ordered cocktails, and they're goofy. They're goofy. They're laughing and they're acting stupid and stuff. Now they'd been dressed up in suits and was snobbish and and smart and all that stuff, and now they're drinking and they're goofy. And I'm thinking these people are probably not alcoholics. Alcohol is doing for them exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a social lubricant. And so it takes away the facade and they can be themselves and they can have fun and enjoy each other. What's wrong with me? I'm not an alcoholic. Why can't I drink? What would happen to me if I took a drink? And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, God, I need to understand this. And it came to me. If I took a drink and I started drinking with those people and they'd been dressed up all day, being who they were all day, and now they're goofuses, I'd be saying, you phony, you know what? You were so important and so smug and arrogant today, and now you're such an idiot, you know? And I would be taking inventories because it would release all of my inhibitions. That's what it had done for them. That's what it's supposed to do. But they don't have alcoholism. I do. And when I drink, I become that old, mean person that I was when I got here. You see, this program makes me a socially acceptable person because I apply these principles to my life. It makes me a person that I like to be around and that you can tolerate being around. And that Keith can live with and love and that Simone can, can love her mother. The mother that you taught me to be, she can love. She couldn't love the mother I was before I came here. 
And so I know this program works. I know that this program combats alcoholism. It does for us what we can't do for ourselves because it plugs us into a power. And that power is in this room. God uses people to help other people. And we have to have each other in order for me to stay centered, in order for me to stay focused. In the 12th step, God gave me a purpose. Why am I here? Why did God put an alcoholic in my life? Because he wanted me to be of service to him. And I could not do that until I hit a bottom and I became useful to my God. You see, God uses people to help other people. I was of no use to God or mankind before I got to you. And because of that, I get to be here. I get to love on you guys this weekend. I get to feel your love. I get to be with Keith and be grateful for sobriety for just one more day. It doesn't matter that he's got 33 years. It means he's changed in those 33 years, and I'm grateful for that change and the change in me. But sobriety is one day at a time, and I cannot forget that as a non-alcoholic. Without physical sobriety in our home, there's nothing. But with physical sobriety in our home, there is hope. With physical sobriety with me, emotional sobriety with me in our home, there is hope. And we got it from coming to things like this. Thank you.